Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. For the next year, I'll be teaching entrepreneurship at Vinh University in Hanoi, Vietnam, where I'm currently at. Please welcome one of the world's leadership experts, Antonio Garrido, author of My Daily Leadership. Antonio, welcome. Hello, Mark. Thank you ever so much for the invitation. I'm excited. This is going to be good. I don't think I've ever zoomed to Hanoi before, but we'll see. But thank you very much for the invitation. Well, we're glad to have you. So let's start off with you telling us about your background. Well, there's a short answer or a long answer. I shall endeavor to keep it reasonably interesting. Um, when I first came out of university a million years ago, because I'm fairly ancient, as you and I were talking before we turned the uh, Zoom on, uh, I was an architect. I came out of university as an architect, uh, was fortunate to work for a, a really inspirational boss who, after a couple of years and a, a couple of promotions, asked me if I wanted to go back to university and do an MBA strategic business management. Why, said I. He said, because really, uh, and I think, Mark, he was he was kind of making maybe suggesting that Maybe I wasn't such a terribly good architect, but he said, "Really, you should be. You should uh, run a few of our divisions. You should. You're more of a leader and a manager than an architect, right?" Which I thought, I don't know whether or not I should take that poorly or or, or well. But anyway, so they funded that. So I then did uh, uh, an MBA in um, uh, strategic business management, ran a couple of businesses, and then more by luck than judgment, Mark, I just kept moving on and moving on and moving up. And uh, by the end uh, of my working for other people stint of my life, uh, I kind of ran what you might call for Fortune 60 companies with billions in revenue and thousands in, uh, of, uh, uh, of employees. Uh, so I ran some very large and complex, complicated businesses and then decided to um, do my own thing. So I went to Miami. You can tell by the strong Floridian accent. So yeah, I went to Miami, set up uh, 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 a business there, a, a leadership and a management training company. Uh, we did pretty, we did rather well. And then I wrote a couple of books. And then I've always been so hugely interested in leadership because I was had been fortunate enough to work for just the best I've ever uh, seen. And so I uh, wrote this book, My Daily Leadership Book, which has just been nominated top 50, one of the top 15 business books of the year, which we were really delighted about. And then, yeah, so I spend most of my time these days uh, coaching um, uh, leaders all over the world. Was that short enough? I could make it longer. No, no, you, I'm so glad you're able to uh, do that. And you have had, and you talk about in your book, the experiences you've had, and you also give great examples of other leaders, which was, um, which made the book uh, such a substantive book. So oh, why did you write this book? And you've written a, uh, another book before, but why did you write this one? Well, I wrote this one because, well, actually, this is the, again, mentioned before we, before we came on air, this is the first of a series of three. But um, I wrote this book because, well, kind of in the same way that I wrote my other two books, um, which were basically about sales and sales management, uh, which is you know quite different from uh, leadership. But uh, because I thought I had something to say, you know, Mark and I, I know we can go along to any kind of Barnes and Noble. I hope everybody knows what that means. I know that you and yeah, I of course. Okay, so we can go along to any bookstop, bookstore. There are lots around. And there are 
miles and miles, certainly shelves and shelves and thousands and thousands of books about leadership. And I, you know, I'd read, I don't want to say most of them, a lot of them. Um, And I thought most of them missed, (laughs) most of them missed the point. Well, they all kind of touched on parts of it. And um, so I thought I had something to say from the experiences of the wonderful leaders that I worked for. Um, but it couldn't be squeezed into one book. So this is, as I said, the first of three. And so I wrote the book to help leaders um, get a better understanding of what their responsibilities are, I guess is the best way to, uh, to, def- to, to define the reason for why I wrote the book. And it seems to have resonated, seems to have struck a chord with lots of people from small individual entrepreneurs all the way through to, again, Fortune 60s. So, um, yeah. That's why. It certainly wasn't because I have nothing else to do with my time. I can promise you that. <laughs> you write early in the book that writing by hand into a notebook is better than typing. Unfortunately, myself, I can't even read my own handwriting, so I have to type. Why do it Why do it that way? So that's a good question. And I guess if I had to define what's the biggest single sticking point that we have with our clients and leaders that we that we coach and train and so on is this very point where they they once they get over the principle that they have to journal you know like every day right um, once they've gotten over that then the next issue is what by hand why by hand because I type everything these days but we talk in the book uh, there is there is and you're a lecturer so so you know this but um, there is mountains of uh, information and data that say recall and understanding and all of those good things are significantly, not by one or two percent, but significantly improved when somebody actually writes by hand. And there's a lot of reasons for it. Talk a lot about it in the book, but to summarize it, when you have to think of something and type, it kind of it kind of short circuits and you can, it, you, you don't, because you can type faster than you can write because writing is dreadful. And I'm like you, I could write something and take it to the chemist and they'll <laughs> make me go for athlete's foot. Right. So yeah. I'm the same as you, but when you actually have to, then when you think of an issue and then you have to edit because you have to try and reduce <laughs> the number of words down. So you go through an edit, so you go through a consideration process, then an editing process, then your brain tells your hands to, uh, to, you know, to actually reveal those words, and then your eyes check it, and there's this feedback loop between yes, that's what I meant to say, and and because it slows you down and it intellectualizes you, and we have an app, right? We have the world's best app, and it's so super duper. And anyone on our course, they can engage with all of our stuff on their app, and whilst we want them to do that. One of the biggest issues, as I say, I promise you, Mark, is the, yeah, that's all well and good, but can you commit that to paper? With a pen, on paper, in a really, really nice journal that nice and big and give you, you know, give your thoughts some room and space to breathe. But actually, what happens, Mark, is quite interesting. After about, and I'm going to say, this is not based on any research whatsoever, but just our experience and all of our uh people that we coach and train and they're on our program, I'm going to say about 90 days. So about three months time. What then happens is we send them new journals every three months in the post, right? Snail mail, dreadful, but they have it on their app. But we, we discourage that. We want them to do it um, uh, by hand. Um, if we're ever late <laughs> with a, you know, not we, but, you know, FedEx or <laughs> you know, you know, the postal service or ever late for whatever reason, um, they lose their minds because it takes about 90 days. And that once that 90 days is over, they get over that hump, they never stop writing. So there's they something- got the discipline of it. Yeah. But it's also, it's also, you know, one of the things that leaders do is they're all moving at a million miles an hour. And like nobody wants more things on their calendar. Everybody wants fewer things on their calendar. They're constantly yeah. fighting that, that time issue. And, and you'll be amazed at how that five or 10 minutes in the morning and five or 10 minutes in the evening actually becomes that their, their journal, their hand, you know, their leather bound hand stitched journal that we, that we supply um, 
it actually becomes their best friend. And it becomes a record for people. So I have two or three, I can think of right off the top of my head, leaders who actually show their people their thoughts, their thinking, and they'll go back and say, oh, we talked about this a a while ago. And it's not a to-do list, to be really clear. This is not a to-do list. This is actual journaling. And if anybody tells you in any in any in any vertical, any market, any pursuit, any discipline that they are that they are serious about developing themselves and their people and their business, and they don't journal, don't believe them. Because anybody you can think of that's you know hugely famous, and we can talk about uh, unsuccessful. I'm sorry. Uh, we can talk about what success is, but anybody that is successful, um, they journal. They 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 all journal. So that's why. Good question. Interesting. So you quote former 76ers general manager. I'm a Philly guy, live near the art museum when I'm in Philadelphia, not in Hanoi. Sam Hinkie regarding believe in the process. Why did you use that quote related to keeping a journal and developing into a better leader? Because you you you've been starting to talk about that more now. So I think that that's another another great question, Mark. But I think it's a little like I actually saw Simon Sinek uh, talking about a very very similar, and you know he's significantly more eloquent <laughs> than I. But um, for those of you that don't know who Simon Sinek is, he's kind of you know one of the kind of things similar to you know what what we do is you know sort of a leadership guru. And we, st- we shared a stage uh, a couple of years ago, super duper guy. And he said, look, imagine somebody says, you know, I want to go to the gym for whatever reason I want to, I don't know, lose weight or increase fitness or stamina or lean muscle, whatever, right? Somebody says they want to go to the gym. And if they looked, you know, if they took all of their clothes off and stood in front of the mirror and looked in the mirror and go, okay, I got it, and took a photo, right? And then went to the gym and then sweated and toiled and bent and stretched and all of those things for an hour or two, came back and then stood in front of the mirror, they wouldn't see any change, right? There's no, there's like, there's just been bending and sweating and stretching for two hours, no change. And if they did the same the next day, no change. And if they did the same the next day, no change. But if they did that consistently, over a period of time, then you would see a change, right? And if you continue to go and continue to go to the gym and continue to focus on, I don't know, your your um, uh, nutrition and sleep and water and all those kind of things, over time, these effects compound. Well, it's the same. It's the same with journaling. It's the same with self-development, people development, company development. From one day to the next, not much changes, right? But if you stick to the process, you believe in the process and you commit to the process, over time, things compound, things develop, good things happen. And it's kind of the, if you've heard of Sir Tom Brailsford, who based, it's the law of marginal gains, right? I'm sure you teach this in in your class, right? Where if you just get 1% better at something consistently every day, every week, 1% better than before long, you're 38% better, then you're 52% better, then you're 76% better. So to answer your question, it's about the law of marginal gains, the compound over time, one day to the next that you don't see any difference, but over time it works. And it's like brushing your teeth. So um, we brush our teeth every day. Why do we brush our teeth every day? Why do we brush it every morning, brush them every morning, brush them every evening? And we don't just kind of save it all up and then just brush our teeth for an hour every Sunday till our gums bleed, right? Because that isn't how you brush your teeth, right? So it's every day, five minutes in the morning, five minutes in the evening, and that's how you keep your teeth. I remember talking to a dentist of mine some years ago, and he said, you need to floss. And I went, what? Like, Every day, because yeah, every day. That's what all my teeth. He said, no, just the ones you want to keep. <laughs> so, of course. so that's what that's what we mean by that's what we mean by that, I think. Just the process. Before we get into your book, are there are there magazines, blogs, and podcasts you listen to about leadership that you think would be helpful for the audience? Um, oh, there are masses. I love Diary of a CEO, which is one of my uh, favorite blogs. I love um, uh, the Dave Stahoviak, Stahoviak, Dave Stahoviak, which um, is um, 
I think it's called Leadership Lessons from the Boardroom, something like that, David Stahoviak. I love him. Um, I love anything by Rory Sutherland, who is, uh, uh, he's actually live this very minute uh, on uh, Nudge Stock, which is, which is the Ogilvy um, annual kind of retreat, but I couldn't be there this right now because I'm here with you guys. So um, anything by Rory Sutherland, or he's the CEO of Ogilvy, which was the organization started by David uh, Ogilvy. Um, if you don't know who he is, I'm sure you the do. The advertising agent? Yeah. Yeah. We talk about David Ogilvy quite a few times in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Genius. So how do you define leadership? Oh, do you know, this, was the, this, is, this is the question I least like because it's a tricky one you know it's a, it's a little bit like how do you define truth or beauty you can kind of get a little esoteric in some of the in some of the answers but you know i could be pithy and say that leadership is the ability to generate fellowship right i could be pithy and say those kind of things but um uh, rather than define what leadership is because i don't think there is i don't think i've ever seen a really precise, concise, all-encompassing definition of leadership, right? Ever, anywhere, ever, and that's from anybody. That's the you know the Maxwells and the Cynics and all of those, even the Marshall Goldsmiths of this world, right? Um, or the um, uh, Daniel Golden, you know, EQ, emotional intelligence, you know, all of those kind of big thinkers. Um, so I don't I don't think I've ever seen and I haven't yet developed a great definition of leadership. Um, what I know is important is what leaders do, <laughs> right? Um, and I know the kind of things that they should be uh, thinking about. So maybe that would help. But if you're if you're going to demand that I uh, give you a definition of leadership. I'm going, I, and I, and me, look at me, like the leadership uh, expert. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to decline because it's, it's just, it's too esoteric. Uh, it's like truth and beauty. But um, I know what leaders do. Um, I know what they should do. Um, would that be useful if we talk about what their role is as opposed to a yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, and it's not, again, it's not because I don't know what leaders do because it's all we do, right, uh, is teach leadership. But um, there are so many facets to it. The, it's it's a bit like, yeah, you know, what is a father, right? What is a father? I mean, define a father. You go, well, biologically, you know, it's somebody that shared some genetic material with with a mother, right? So you could get to that point, but it actually doesn't kind of inform the debate very much. But so leaders uh, have to make decisions. So we know that. And uh, of course, what we hope is that they that they make uh, a few really high quality decisions rather than lots and lots and lots and lots of decisions. So we need a lot of discernment about uh, decision-making. So that's one of the things that we need to put into our melting pot for our definition of a leader. We know that their, their job is to future-proof themselves, their people, and therefore by default their business. So that's a little bit like the Marshall Goldsmith, what got you here won't get you there, right? It's a bit the um, you know, skate to where the puck is going to be. So we know that that's also what they have to do. They have to future-proof themselves, their people, and therefore by default their business. We have a model for leadership, which just talks about the five main pillars of leadership, which is, uh, you know, they have a responsibility to develop people, as we mentioned, to develop their company, to develop themselves, to develop strategy, and to develop other leaders. So we have this principle of people development, company development, strategy development, self-development, leadership development. So we know that that's what they have to do. We also have our model of leadership, and I think this is kind of where I'll leave it, and hopefully I'm going to get to your answer. We have a model of leadership that says, look, really what leadership about is about is about maximizing potential. It's maximizing your own potential, your people's potential, your business's potential. Right. So it's Potential maximization more than anything else. And well, how do we do that then? Because that sounds like one of those very, you know, esoteric, slightly ephemeral um, uh, 
aspirations with no real substance behind it. So let's break it down into its kind of four areas. So let's imagine that um, we were... Uh, I was talking to Ivanhoe before we started. Hi, Ivanhoe. If we were going to try and uh, maximize Ivanhoe's potential, right? What, where would we start? How would we do that? Well, so the four areas of one of the so one of the things that we have to um, uh, focus on is kind of Ivanhoe's beliefs and values. Some so let's talk about some conceptual issues with. Ivanhoe's beliefs and values. Where did they come from? Was he born with them? No, he's learned them, he's developed them. So we've got something, it's it's something to do, if we were going to maximize Ivanhoe's potential, it's got something to do with helping him with his beliefs and values. Okay, but just believing isn't enough. So we also then need to hold him accountable to some actions and initiatives, right? You've got to do something. So we want those actions and, and initiatives to be fair, you know, fairly high quality, right? So so we've got some good beliefs and values. We've got some good actions and initiatives. We also then, well, if we're doing some actions and initiatives, we've got to make sure that the skills and abilities and techniques of those actions and initiatives are also high quality. So we've got to also look at skills and initiatives. And then finally, we've got to deal with this principle that all leaders have, which is kind of these gaps in their, it's kind of blind spots, right? So we have to be, we have to build self-awareness and EQ so we can identify these gaps so that we can then close those gaps. So it's about beliefs and values, actions and initiatives, skills and abilities, and emotional intelligence and self-awareness. I did a, a talk just before COVID hit um, in Florida to about 400 leaders from all sizes, companies, all markets, all structures, and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and I asked the audience, who were all leaders, um, by show of hands, who here has no leadership blind spots, right? So by a show of hands, who has no leadership blind spots? Now, thankfully, Mark, <laughs> right, in a... <laughs> In a, in a great display of self-awareness, nobody put their hands up, where everybody accepted, well, do you know what? I probably do have some leadership blind spots. Terrific. So there were no hands, which was a good start. So the, the supplementary question, which is obvious, and you can already see it coming, I'm sure, I was like, okay, great. So we all recognize that we have blind spots. Will everybody do me a favor? And please, by individual, write down what your blind spots are, <laughs> right? Now, now we have a problem because they recognize that they must have some blind spots, but what they actually are is, well, if they knew, then they wouldn't be blind spots. So now, now it gets tricky. So how do we figure out, how do we grow that EQ, that emotional intelligence? How do we, how do we build that self-awareness so that we can discover and deal with our blind spots? Well, that's tricky. So that's why we have to do this reflexive and reflective daily um, kind of journaling. And we've got to write it down or else it yeah. doesn't stick. Um, we have a question from the audience. You mentioned yeah. Goldsmith and Gordon as some of the thought leaders at the top of the of your list. Are there any women on your list of top thought leaders? In the Ooh. leadership space? Yeah. So the best woman uh, that I ever saw and spoke to uh, leadership in terms of, you know, leadership um, was a lady called Condoleezza Rice, who I'm sure. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I'm sure any Americans on, on the line will know who Condoleezza, Condoleezza Rice is. So tremendous, tremendous, tremendous understanding of leadership. Let's see who else. I confess. So I, uh, Mary Kay Cosmetics, Mary Kay of Mary Kay Cosmetics. Yes. Big fan, big fan of her um, uh, uh, principles of business development and leadership. So I like her too. Um, this is going to sound, this is going to be very divisive, I think, but I did like um, some of her principles. Um, uh, Margaret Thatcher. Okay, he was the British Prime Minister for the yeah, longest decade. Yeah, for maybe I was going to say maybe fifteen years or so. Now, yeah. early Margaret Thatcher, not late Margaret Thatcher. So, so just to be clear, 
early yeah. Margaret Thatcher, not late Margaret Thatcher. So, yeah, a few in there. Oh, and I tell you who I really love. I love the lady whose name escapes me. will come to me in a second. The lady that um, developed Spanx, S-P-A-N-X, so Spanx, which is like a lady's. Yeah, yes. Um, I'm forgetting she's in Atlanta, Georgia. Yes. She, right. when she, the, the tenacity that she had to build her business well, Sarah, right? Yeah, thank you for that. Was yeah. absolutely phenomenal. And in, in terms of a case study of grit and determination and getting your business off but, the ground. Well, I think Antonia, what the what she's actually asking here is, and oh. and I'm kind of struggling with this, trying to think of this myself. And I've had a lot of women uh, authors on. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, is which ones are thought leaders like Goldsmith and Gordon? You know, are there any women thought leaders in uh, leadership that you pay attention to? And I'm struggling yeah. myself. No, no, I, I have again. So somebody Googled this. We actually put a lot of her thought, you know, some a lot of her philosophy into into this book and more specifically into the leadership assessment that we developed. And it's the lady whose name will come to me in a second or somebody google it it's about uh, uh, dr carol dweck who wrote the book about um fixed mindset beautiful 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 slightly clunky book but beautiful uh uh philosophy on leadership so yeah carol dr carol dweck i guess would be my favorite of them all so what's the differences between great and good leaders <laughs> okay so there are many. <laughs> so one of the things uh, when we engage with our new clients, um, it, it's it's an interesting. When we first engage with leaders, we 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 tend to ask them some very pointed and tricky questions. Can I give you an example of what some of those questions might be? And it, it, it does go to answering answering your question, I promise. So let's imagine, right. let's imagine, Mark, that you were the CEO of an organization, uh, some some millions. So we, you know, kind of middle of the road, not not billions, but then you know, not brand new. So you know, middle market million. company. What's that? Sorry, a middle market company. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And let's imagine, let's just pretend for the sake of argument that you have, I don't know, 30 people. I don't know, right? So I'll say to you, okay, Mark, so let's think about this for a second. I'll say, let's draw a standard deviation bell chart, right? I'll say you probably have 20% A players, you probably have 60% B players, and you probably have 20% C players, right? And everybody accepts that, you know, that's yeah. probably how the world works because, you know, on average, the Himalayas are flat, right? So on average, yeah. that's kind of how the world works. So I'll say, okay, well, so then tell me about some of your C players. So they'll say, okay, George. I'll say, okay, brilliant. And I'll write down George and then who else? Mary, who else? Tom. Because they're pretty much front of mind with, you know, leaders. They they know who their A players are. They know who their C players are. And kind of the movable middle sometimes get forgotten about. But anyway. I said, okay, well, tell me about George. How long has George been with you? George has been, what does he do for the organization? Whatever. George has been with us for six years. And I can't remember the names now. Mary's been with us for three years. And yeah. Tom's been with us for two and a half years. I said, okay, great. And then I said, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this, Mark. Um, did you hire them like that? Or did you make them like that? See players who've been with them for years, right? Right. Yeah. Let's imagine they say, well, we hired them like that. Well, that doesn't really speak terribly well for the hiring process, the recruitment process, and all of that kind of stuff, right? If they say we made them like that, well, that doesn't speak well for their culture particularly, right? And if they say they don't know, then that doesn't speak particularly well to their leadership uh, skills and abilities or you get the idea. So so we, we, we kind of start to ask these really uh, searching questions, not 
to embarrass anybody or to catch anybody out. It's not a gotcha exercise. We're not trying to, we're not trying to make things difficult for people. We're just trying to have them think about things um, in a slightly different way. Now, Mark, I confess I've forgotten the question. Really, re- ask me again. I know that that was moving towards it. The difference between good and great leaders. Oh, yes. Right. So we ask them some bunch of questions, really make them mentally sweat. And then we ask them this. So, so Mark, tell me, do you want to be um, uh, like a below average leader? Do you want to be an average leader? Do you want to be a good leader? Do you want to be a great leader? Do you want to be a best in class leader? Do you want to be a world class leader? What kind of leader do you want to be? You would be stag- what do you th- what do you think the answer would be, Mark? Everybody wants to be a world class leader. No, you would be staggered, Mark. How many times they say, "No, I want to be a good leader." No, I want to be a great leader. Sometimes they say, "No, I want to be a world class leader." And some of them go. Very few of them go. I want to be, you know, a, a, a best in class. And very few say a world class leader. And you go, "Why wouldn't that be?" It doesn't even make everybody? sense. To me doesn't make sense right why wouldn't every one of them say i want to be you know world class why wouldn't they well because it comes to it comes to this you know that beliefs and values that we were talking about you know that conception maybe that imposter syndrome and all of those kind of stuff so uh, we play this game and it was a game wasn't really a game but it was an exercise and and all of your so ted and benjamin and ivanhoe do this. Follow along for this. It's a, it's a really, really, really telling exercise. So i just been uh, given uh, one of those fairly significant leadership roles that I was talking about earlier. Uh, we talk about this in the book. But anyway, um, and the chairman of the group uh, on my f- second or third day with the organization, there was a note left on my desk because as you and I were talking earlier, Mark, we're both ancient, and this was before email was arrived, right? So right. handwritten note with a beautiful fountain pen <laughs> note on my desk, please come and see me. So I went to go and see this chap. Uh, in truth, I shouldn't really have been given this role. It was just, it was political, expedient, and I wasn't ready. So what happened? What's that? So what happened? Right. So the CEO, group CEO, said, uh, you know, welcome aboard. So glad and da 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 da. Um, he said, "Have you ever?" And this is the question for everybody listening: Have you ever worked for a terrible leader? Right. And I'm sure that most people here sure. can instantly think about you know the, the 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 dreadful leader that they've worked for in the past. Maybe work for now. Who knows? I hope not. So I said, "Yeah, of course." He said, "Terrific." He said, "Do me a big favor," and he passed me a piece of paper and a pen slid it across the desk and said, will you will you write down, you know, the kind of characteristics of dreadful leadership, what a dreadful leader is about. Now, I can't, in truth, Mark, in detail, remember everything I wrote in that first pass, but it was probably something like everybody's thinking about maybe a micromanager, maybe blow hots and coal favorites, bad at strategic planning, uh, poor uh, decision making, whatever you know, whatever, yeah. whatever your own image of dreadful leadership is. So I slid the list back. He said, "Terrific." He said, "Well, write me some more." So I wrote another four or five things, and he said, "Great, just give me a few more." And now I have a list of about twelve things of what a dreadful leader looks like. Right? It will be nearly everybody's list would be the same. I imagine. He said, "Great." He said, now, Antonio, he said, would you do me an, an enormous favor? I said, yes, of course. Well, you know, what can I do? He said, whilst ever you are leading this company, he said, well, can you promise to never, ever do any of those things that are on this <laughs> list? Right. So I went, go, oh, gosh, well, I'll try. He said, well, try every day. Okay. He said, put that piece of paper in your pocket. He said, if ever I see you in the corridors and the cafeteria or whatever, he said, seek me out. And he said, we'll chat about it. So keep that list with you at all times. Now, I know you're probably thinking, Mark, hold on, he's not telling me what a great leader is. But sometimes one of the best ways to figure out what to do is to actually figure out to what not do. So we're talking to uh, our leaders, our new clients, and we'll say, okay, 
create this list, create this list for us of what does dreadful look like, right? And then I ask them, when was the last time you did any of the things on this list? Right? When was the last time you did when was the last time you did X? When was the last time you did Y? Tell me about the last time you did Z, right? And then you'll be amazed at how often those with good self-awareness, because we do an assessment and we know those with good self-awareness actually are quite in touch with you know, their list of <laughs> dreadfulnesses. And those with poor self-awareness go, I've never done those kind of things, right? But then when you ask them, so how come you've got all of these C players? How come you've got masses of turnover? How come you're not making the profits? How come you're behind on your business? But right when you and they always externalize their issues. So back to your question. What does great look like? Great looks like somebody that has a very clear uh view, image of what greatness looks like. They have very high self-awareness. They have very high EQ. They are consistently trying to raise the bar, knowing they're never going to, you know, reach their full, full, full. It's a bit like um, Wimbledon at the moment on in England. You know the tennis. Yeah, um, yeah, of course they've been watching. Okay. Oh, okay, splendid. So if you could imagine, I don't know. Let's say Novak Djokovic, just for the sake of argument, right? So world number one, or is it Federer? Anyway, no, I think it's Djokovic at the moment. So, yeah, Djokovic, it is. Yeah. That right. was retired. Oh, yes, yes, correct. So, so now, of course, today he's playing in Wimbledon, but what's he going to be doing next, or oh, two weeks on Friday? Will he be lounging around watching TV, eating pizza every day? No, he'll be working with his coach every day, right? He'll be trying to get better every day. To the next level. And he's the best in the world. And he's the only guy in the world that can say, I got this figured out, right? And, and if even he or Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods or or um, uh, whoever, right? Whoever yeah, you know, they said Michael Jordan took 200 shots every day. And they said if he's the best player in the world and he practiced and he took 200 shots every day after practice. After what does that practice. tell you? So, after Antonio, yeah. one of the questions I think a lot of us uh, want to know as leaders is, how do you engender trust that your own people won't hesitate to tell you when you aren't doing a good job? This is one of the trickiest issues of them all. Because one of the other questions, Mark, we ask our clients when we first start coaching them is, let's again pretend it's you, Mark. Say, hey, Mark, what percentage of the time do you think your people tell you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Right. What percentage of the time do you think your people tell you the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? Now, we all know, Mark, it's not 100 percent. Neither is it zero. Right. But what people are telling you, Mark, is a version of the truth that they think it's in their best interest to have you believe. Uh, one of the great kind of examples of this, perhaps, because nobody would come along to your office, Mark, and go, hey, Mark, you, you got five minutes. You go, yeah, sure. Come in. What's up, George? They go, I just wanted to let you know that I've been watching your performance over the last six months. And quite frankly, it's dreadful. I think you're terrible at this. And you couldn't be worse at this. And where on earth did you think that that was a good idea? That never happens. It's hard to tell someone who got an ugly baby, right? And I remember that George Bush Sr. was just an ex-president, but you chaps still call the ex-president Mr. President ever so confused. But anyway, so he was no longer the president. He was... He was just walking off the 18th green at a pro-am golf tournament, and somebody shoved a camera in his face and said, how was the golf, Mr. President, right? And he thought for a second, then he said, do you know what? He said, it's amazing how many games of golf I've lost since leaving the White House, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> so why? What's going on there? Well, whilst everybody was the president, Everybody let him win, right? Now, here's the problem. Whilst ever you're the boss and sign everybody's checks and you decide what, you know, what gets reflected in the next salary review and where the who gets the key to the executive wash, washroom and where the car park spaces are allocated, right? It's it's gonna be tricky. So come back to this principle of trust. The the uh the the group chairman I was talking to you about earlier, you know, the one that said that write me this list of dreadfulness, right? That yeah. that um uh, he he came to the boardroom one day. We just uh, we had just had uh, um, an employee engagement survey 
taken of 17,000 people that worked for the for the company cost about a quarter of a million pounds back in the day when a quarter of a million pounds was a pretty penny, right, Mark? And yeah. they produced this this report, you know, about employee engagement and what what did everybody think of the board? And it was like the New York Yellow Pages. Again, dating myself, but anyway, the New York Yellow Pages for anybody that doesn't know what I'm talking about was probably I imagine it was like this thick. So this report came out as this thick. The executive summary was like 200 pages long, and it turns out that people didn't trust us. It turned out that employees didn't trust the board, and and so. The, the group CEO asked, asked the whole board, there were like, I don't know, 15 people in the room, to all stand up. He said, cup your hands, you know, like cupping your hands like this, as if you were holding water. So he said, imagine you were all holding some water in your hands. And he said, and, and your job is to not let any water trickle out from between your fingers, right? You, how would you hold it? And everybody says, you know, very, very carefully, and you'd really focus on it. He said, what if we had to move? from here to the other side of the room. Yeah, would we move fast or slowly? We'd move slowly. Would we pay more attention or less attention? More attention. And on and on and on. He said, okay, now, let's imagine that that's the trust, right, that people have in us, that that's the water in your hand, that that, that represents the trust that people in the organization have with us, the leadership team. He said, now do this, do that, right? We kind of all did that. He said, okay, where's the water now? Water's on the floor. He said, okay. So we, we've lost the trust of our people. He said, okay, now how difficult is it to get the water back off, off the floor and into your hands? Impossible. Impossible. And he said, don't forget. He said that the good that we do is written in sand and the bad that we do is written in marble. And we have to make sure, right, that it, okay. So I'm going to ask you the question. You ready, Mark? Imagine that you were a leader and I said to you, hey, Mark, What's your strategy for truth? What would you say, do you think? I'm not uh, trying to catch No, no, no. I, my strategy for truth is just to be uh, blunt, point, point blank honest about everything that they ask. Terrific. It's to tell, you know, we have to be, you know, high in frankness, but also high in diplomacy. To, you know, yeah, of we, course. Okay, good. So we're not going to be rude about it, but we have to be very frank and we have to be High in frankness and high in diplomacy. Terrific. So that's our strategy for truth. Always, always tell the truth. Because if you don't, the good you do is written in sand, the bad you yeah, do is written in It's not worth yeah. it. So many leaders say, but I am like the very modicum of, I am the very exemplar of truth. I said, well, are you really though? And this is to one of my divisional managers. I said, are you really though? So he said, yeah. I said, well, you know the company that you just acquired and you told our internal people today that you'd purchased this company yesterday? How long had that been in plan? How long had that been in motion? He said, oh, about six months. I said, did anybody know? Did you tell them? Did you tell them before today? He said, well, no. Why? Well, because I didn't, I couldn't trust what they were. I said, oh, okay. Ah. Right. So I said, um, okay. So you don't tell the truth. You don't tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Yet you expect people to do the same for you. You don't trust them. You expect them to trust you. And, and trust isn't earned. Trust first has to be given. It first has to be given. Another leader I worked for who wasn't quite as enlightened as some of the ones that we've been talking about, Mark, came to my office one day, very, very irate, very, very agitated, narrated about something or other. I said, what's up? I, don't, I won't mention the person's name. I said, what's up? He said, did you know and I'm, that Jillian, it wasn't Jillian, but did you know that Jillian was off yesterday? The reasonably senior individual in the organization. I said, no. He said, she was. She was off yesterday. She went to her uncle's funeral. And he was like livid. And I went, oh, you're joking. He thought I was on his side. I went, oh, poor Jillian. And, and he, I, I had no idea. I'll, I'll have to hunt her out and say, I'm very sorry that her uncle's no longer around. And he went, no, 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 you missed the point. I said, oh, tell me, what's, what's the point? He said, well, if you look at our staff handbook, uncles is not on the list of close oh, relatives. Jesus. Right? <laughs> okay, right. And I went, oh, okay. So he said, so what are you going to do about it? I said, well, 
Let's call this person John. He wasn't John, but I'm so tempted to say his voice, his name. So I'm going to say John. <clears throat> I said, well, John, I think the first thing I'm going to do is go see Gillian. Tell her how sorry we are for her uncle. Sort out some flowers or so on. The next thing I'm going to do, and he goes, right. And he goes, the next thing I'm going to do is change that policy. Yeah, I'm just thinking exactly that. Right. And he goes, what do you mean? And I went, John. I nearly said his name again. I said, John. Um, I think a good measure of whether or not we trust our employees is held in that company staff handbook. And to me, that looks like the Ministry of Manufacturing. And this needs to go, right? And so if we don't trust our people, how can we possibly expect them to trust us, right? So back to answer your original question, how do we build trust? Well, it, it, and it's a little bit like, you know, Richard Branson? I'm sure everybody knows who Richard Branson is. Yeah, yeah. And Antonio, I'd like oh, yeah. to get to a couple, uh, some other oh, okay. questions. Yeah, okay, okay. Go ahead, go ahead. So um, in the book, you talk about um, Bill Gates promotes uh, using an, uh, mind maps. What what are mind maps and how do you maximize success using a mind map? Okay, terrific. Great question. So one of the principles that we talk a lot about in the book and in our program with our leaders is making uh, decisions using tools and mental models, right? Because so many leaders just rely on gut instinct and, and experience and stuff. And that experience is often, you know, because of confirmation bias and all that kind of stuff, we, can't, we don't have time to talk about it. But it's very ropey and sketchy at best, right? When I, ask, when I ask leaders, how are they making decisions and actually dig into it, it's not based on very much, Mark. And they know the tools that they know. And I know that you're a business uh, uh, professor. So you'll know what an ANSOS matrix is. You'll know what uh, Porter's five forces are. You'll know what the shell directional G model is. You'll know what all of these things are. But most leaders don't know this stuff. They don't know about all of these tools the, and these mental models and these models to make decisions and, you know, uh, risk benefit analysis and all of that kind of stuff. Well, um, one of the things that they don't know is this principle of mind mapping and tony buzan the british chap was uh was the founder of or the inventor i suppose of mind maps and what mind maps are uh, are a really 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 great way of on a piece of paper with a pen although there are apps available please don't use them of starting to uh, think of uh, an issue and start bringing together ideas those leaders that actually use mind maps in meetings are significantly more creative. Just, just, just Google. There are other search engines available. Mind maps by Tony Buzan, and you'll see how great they are at getting the gray, um, the, the 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 gray cells working towards better problem solving. Why? Because here's the thing: what we're looking for in all leaders is to develop insight, and insight, right? Which is in rare supply these days, and most large organizations these days actually recruit, not just for technical skill, not just for experience, but also for EQ that we talked about earlier, and also insight, right? Those that are really, really good at insight. And mind mapping is the best tool to develop insight. There you go. So uh, I want to know this, for uh, leadership planning and you know resource planning, uh, where is chat GBT going to be fitting in here? And how seriously should we be worrying about that when it comes to people running organizations? And, and where will that all fit in? Worried not. Uh, so how worried should you be? Don't be worried. Like if general intelligence does suddenly one day spark and suddenly the computer is going to take over the world, there's nothing we can do <laughs> to stop that. So. I remember once, a very, very short story, because I know my stories do ramble somewhat. When the internet first came out, okay, um, uh, I was working for an organization who was selling products all around the world. And one of the places that we sold was into Northern Ireland. And Northern Ireland was part of the British and the United Kingdom. But then Southern Ireland era was this whole different market. There was different tariffs and so on. Anyway, what somebody was doing was buying tons of our stuff. And I mean, genuinely, literally, 
tons of our stuff into Northern Ireland and then shipping it a mile south into Era and avoiding taxes and da 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 and selling it for much cheaper than we could. We were in a board meeting and everyone was bemoaning this fact. And I said, hold on, guys, time out, time out. Hands up here, who thinks the internet is going to go away? And of course, every, nobody put their hands up. I said, okay, good. Now we know that the internet isn't going to go away. It's our job. You know what I said earlier, Mark, we've got to future-proof ourselves, our people in our business, right? If anybody didn't see ChatGPT coming six months ago, I don't know where you were looking because everybody saw it coming, right? So, and it's not going to go away like the internet didn't when I mentioned it 30 years ago, right? So we know it's not going to go away. So let's think about whose roles ChatGPT is going to significantly influence. Anything from accountants to zebra stuffers, right? And everything in between, A to Z, whatever you do, ChatGPT is going to significantly impact your space, your world, your role. So you better get with the program because if you're a radiologist, for example, does that mean that chat, chat GPT or some version of AI will destroy your job? No, but the radiologist who does have their arms around AI will outperform the radiologist who doesn't. The copywriter who does have their arms around AI, will outperform the, the, the copywriter who doesn't. Right, so the leader that does have their organization embrace AI will outperform those leaders or organizations that don't. So don't be fearful of it. It's only like the people that, um, you know, had stables and horses and uh, carriages and made buggy whips right before Henry Ford came along and, and, yeah. and <laughs> made the automobile, right? So you can you can be like King Canute and bemoan the fact that AI is here and it's changing the world and you can kind of wish back the tide, but that isn't going to make the tide move, right? So, so yeah, embrace AI. It's a tremendous tool has its limitations like any other tool, but it's no different from the mobile phone, the fax machine, the automobile, the airplane, and uh, whatever. And there is another chat GPT or AI just around the corner right now. As a world, as a world, we learned how to pivot uh, pretty quickly when COVID came around. And those that didn't, unfortunately, fell by the wayside, right? So, so, Chat GPT is just another COVID-19, and there will be another one around the corner. So embrace it. No question. So uh, Mark Zuckerberg is make a huge bets uh, in the long term uh, through investing in billions of dollars in the metaverse. And clearly, Apple, Google, Microsoft all see the value because they're making their own investments. But Meta was taking uh, a huge hit for their stock and a credibility hit. How can business leaders with investors that are typically focused on short-term results, what you call weather and climate, and, and look at a long-term opportunities like climate? So what's your view on that? So that's a great question. Most of the larger organizations, so I would say, and that doesn't mean they're particularly well run, but those larger organizations typically tend to have investors whose money is more kind of a more of a Japanese approach to investing. What do I mean by that? That, you know, the Japanese kind of investing culture is generational, right? They'll plan generations down the road. And I love that kind of philosophy, right? Yeah. Whether money is pension money and it's like bonds and stocks and long money and all that kind of stuff. And they're normally pretty, pretty safe and then more like the tech companies, like you know the, the Zuckerbergs and or Facebooks and so on. Um, tech companies and smaller companies tend to take much more of a shorter term view of uh, investment. They typically have a, a different type of stock uh, or s stakeholder profile. Let's put it that way. My experience, so the companies that I worked for, the companies I ran, and a lot of the companies that, that we decide to work with are more that long-term, 
large, you know, we have a, you know, a generational approach uh, 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 to things. Now, here's the thing. No organization can determine who buys their stock. It just can't be done, right? If it's on the open market, if it's traded, if it's, you know, the, the bell rings and people start buying uh, shares. So so what can a what can a, a leader do about that if they don't like their stock holding profile? Well, they they need to readdress their core values. They need to readdress their vision, mission, goals. They need to make sure that the people around them are sharing all of that kind of stuff. And it will it will cascade down and it will fall through. So if you want that quick, if you want that short-term high-risk investor, it's really easy to do. Then just that's that's how you play the game. If you want that longer term, you know, more kind of uh Warren say, Buffett type investor. Then you play the game differently. So you determine, you determine who uh, who buys your share Exactly. Um, it occurred to me from reading the book that successful people go through bad periods where nothing works, like a, a star basketball player missing a series of shots in the game. How can someone whose company and or career write their own corporate or personal ship through your methodology? Ah, great question. And I think it nicely, I don't know whether this was intentional, almost comes full circle to this principle of, you know, trust or believe in the process. Right. right? right. So. Um, I've worked for, you know, again, it also connects to beautifully to that question. What does a terrible leader look like? Well, so Mark, have you ever seen seven-year-olds playing soccer, right? No. If you've ever seen seven-year-olds playing soccer, here's what happens. The ball goes over here and 22 kids swarm over to the ball. And then the ball yeah. goes over here and 22 kids swarm over here. And the ball goes over there and 22 kids have you ever seen businesses run like that? Where yeah. the CEO goes, this is the new theme for the day. And everybody's oh, yeah. going, oh, no, 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 no. Shiny object over here. Now this is it. No, no, I didn't mean that. And I meant this. And the whole organization is zigzagging. It's a bit like how I play golf, right? I don't go down the middle. I kind of zigzag along the golf course. Well, the organizations that do that are kind of ex- sort of exemplifying what you were just talking about. If you have a scarcity mindset where you think this isn't working, so let's let's try something else and flip and flop and flip and flop. But if you believe in the process and you have an abundance mindset, right, and you believe in the process, if the results aren't there, which what we results, normally dollars, normally, you know, orders and margins and profitability, we call those lagging indicators. But if you concentrate instead of on the lagging indicators, those things, rather on the leading indicators, which are your your values, your coaching, your process, your beliefs and how you run things. If you do those things, those beliefs well, those behaviors well, those good skills and techniques, good emotional intelligence on those leading indicators, the lagging indicators will take care of themselves before too long. So believe in the process concentrate on the leading indicators rather than the lagging indicators. Here's the last question. In the book, you write that most managers have a pretty clear development path for individuals that report to them. What was your process for developing talent and how did that change over the years? And what will have taken the future to develop talent? It's never changed over the years. (laughs) So developing talent is comes back to when you asked what the definition of leaders was, and I said people development is the number one thing, right? Which has helped people reach their full potential, masterful mentorship, understanding motivation, all of those good things. Organizing a, a, an organization that's very, very collaborative. Okay, so talent development is the most important, well, it's the second most important thing that you have to worry about. One is action bias, which is just get moving, get moving, make an imperfect start and course correct along the way. And the other thing then is that is that talent development piece. Starts with you though. And I cannot tell you, Mark, how many leaders I when I have asked them, so how do we develop our people around here? And they go, oh, we've got a great process. What we do is we have PDRs, that's personal development reviews, once or twice, which isn't enough, but once or twice a year, still not enough, but anyway. And then we have this process, we have this system, everybody gets a score out of 10. We don't link it to salary review, good. 
And uh, I said, okay, great. Show me a couple of files. And we go over to HR and we'll pull out some files and we'll have a look at them. I go, terrific. Now show me yours. Right. And everybody in the organization, all 500 people have one of these files apart from them. And, and what does that talk about? You know, walking the talk, right? Judging themselves by their intentions and everybody else by their actions. And it's not about, you know, so, so I, I think walk the talk, figure out the three things that you, Mr. Leader, take an assessment or Mrs. Leader, take an assessment, figure out where your gaps are, like you, like you demand of everybody else and sort it out for yourself first. Put your own Antonio, I so enjoyed having you. And what I loved again about the book is that you had real world experience and you put that real world experience to work in the book as opposed to theory. I'm always more um, focused on real world than theory. So I thank you so much, especially for talking to us from France. It's funny you're in France and one end of the world. I'm in Hanoi, Vietnam at the other end of the world. And we have people from around the world listening here. So thank you so much. And I hope everybody has a great weekend. And Antoine, we look forward to your next book. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. I've enjoyed it. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you, sir. See you later. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.